Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. Science, 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 science. Convincing effect. Is there an echo in here? There is an echo in here. There isn't just an echo here. It's just the science is repeating on us. Not in a bad sort of of gastric (laughs) way either. Um, Yeah, my name is Chris and I am going to be talking about science today. I'm going to be talking about some problem species, a couple of problem species in Australia um, and what may what they are and what can, what's being done about them or can be done. Um, I'm going to be looking at carp, which Barnaby Joyce is going to infect with herpes. And I'm it's going to be looking... It's goldfish. It's beautiful. And I'm going to be looking <laughs> at noisy miners, um, a, a bird that you've probably all encountered in some form or another. Manisha, what do you got for us today? Um, today I'm going to be talking about very large fires and the weather patterns that they could create. Great. Hmm. Any particular fires? Um, actually, I am talking about the Fort McMurray fires out in Canada, so it, you may have heard of it on the news, and I thought I'd look at the science behind the fire. Great. Fire, fire science. <sighs> Stu? I am going to be talking with Professor Paul Fisher from La Trobe University about a new blood test that they've developed to detect Parkinson's disease earlier Ooh. than they've been able to before. So it's right. a, bit of a bit of a breakthrough from local scientists. Wow. Oh, fantastic. Great. Great. Well, on with the show. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris and look, Australia has, you know, a lot of biodiversity, a lot of a lot of um native species. We also have a lot of introduced species that cause trouble and various other disturbances of the environment. And so we have a lot of control, I guess. You know a lot about this sort of stuff, Manisha, about yeah. things you have to do with the <laughs> ecology. I only got to talk about a couple of probable species today. So pre- pretty much uh, every domesticated species has gone feral in Australia, pretty much. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that, that's fairly common. But yeah. I'm, I'm going to talk about a couple of problem species. One of them is an introduced. One of them is a native species. So kind of different situation mm. slightly. But, um, yeah, you may have seen. I mean, we have got a uh, election underway at the moment where we have two parties kind of competing for... Well, there's other parties, Your more love. than just two. Um, but one of them is the coalition, and one of the policies that they announced, well, it wasn't really a policy, it was an initiative that they announced um, at the beginning of May, is the control of CARP. Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce was there talking about disgusting bottom-dwelling mud-sucking creatures trying to do a bit of a joke about the opposition, but in fact he was talking about Serpinus carpio. Um, this is the same species as your ornamental koi. And, and stuff. Goldfish and goldfish yeah. and that sort of thing. They are an invasive species, of course, in Australia. They don't belong here. They have been particularly damaging to the Murray Darling Basin, where they have done stuff like, you know, competed with native fish. They stir up the mud because they are bottom dwelling mud sucking creatures. So they stir up the mud and they make the water all kind of cloudy and that you know, hurts the vegetation Turkey. and, yeah, and lots cause a lot of other problems as well. So they are a damaging species. Uh, no one knows exactly how damaging. Barnaby Joyce has his own opinion, but we don't necessarily believe everything he says, I guess. But they have committed $15 million with a program to control them by releasing a virus, the Cyprinid Herpes Virus mm. 3, 
Um, this has been dubbed Carpageddon. I don't know why they didn't call it Carpies or something like that or uh, mm. Kerpies. I don't know. But uh, Carpageddon sounds going a bit far. So, yeah, like it is an interesting concept. This is a disease that was discovered in Israel in 1998. Um, it's very contagious, though it's spread rapidly through Europe and Asia and has damaged the industries oh, there. Oh, so we thought, hey, why not try it out here? Well, no, because there they, they like carp, you know. A lot of times they eat carp or they're ornamental, this sort of things. Whereas mm. in Australia, it's like carp are a pest. So it's like, you know, they didn't want the virus. We said, we'll have it. We want to control oh, the carp. Oh, yeah, great. Yeah. Good on us. So yeah. it, does, it doesn't affect other fish species look mm. it has been tested quite a bit it's apparently it's a very specific um the type of virus is quite specific it is a type of herpes virus but it's specific to that species and is very unlikely to jump to other species of course that is something you have to you monitor but there are concerns about this every time there is kind of a biological control people do get concerned because but, it's all tested in very controlled ways and then nature is not very controlled well, yeah, I, I guess, um, you know, the, the kind of the precedent for this one is things like your, your rabbit viruses, like your myxomatosis and your Khaleesi virus, which haven't spread to, you know, mm. native species because they're very, very different. And same with here, the native fish are very different. There are some problems, though, that, that kind of beyond that. And one of the big things is going to be if this virus is so, so strong, you know, what to be done with all the, the dead fish that will result in it? Because there's <laughs> going to be a huge amount of, of dead fish. Apparently, these carp, I mean, they are a very big problem in the Murray-Darling Basin. They're estimated to be up to 80% of the biomass, Jeez. which gives you an idea of the scale of the problem, but also gives you an idea of the scale of the, the dead fish that would have to be cleaned up if this virus is released. Well, potentially they are quite useful as, um, in fact, they already do harvest carp to turn into fish emulsion, which is a plant food. So they could potentially use it you know, to improve farming agricultural soils and things like that. There is. There, um, there are businesses that do that. I mean, apparently, I think you do have to get them fairly quickly while, yeah. while they're still relatively fresh. You've got a couple of days to collect them. And, and they're kind of stinky too. Yeah. So this is, um, this is a big part of what the, uh, the $15 million that the government is spending or going to spend is for trying to work out how to do the cleanup. And they want to get community groups and things involved. Doesn't kind of answer what you do in like remote areas, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Suddenly $15 million is not sending like it's a lot of money for uh, mm. scale. Yeah, the Murray-Darling is a very large, a very large area. area. Yeah. yeah, so and that's over two years as well. So, yeah, look, there are some concerns there. And there's also, I think, a concern that it's got a very high mortality rate, something like up to 80% mortality rate. Um, but that means that you've still got some fish that are going to be virus-resistant. They will breed up again. And it's estimated that in 10 years' time, you'll have populations return to about 60% of their current level. So it's not a permanent solution either. It's just a temporary yeah. reduction. But then again, the carp are a big problem, so what are you going to do about the carp? If not this, then what else are you going to do? I mean, but they haven't been able to find a way to catch them or trap them or anything else that's made an impact on population mm. numbers. So, you know, what else can you do? Do you just accept the carp and that it's changed the waterways forever, or do you do just like this to try and control them? So it is kind of a difficult situation, I guess, to be in. Much as there is with the, my next species that I want to talk about, which is the the noisy miners. Um, this is every look every three months. I get involved in the Mary Creek Bird Survey, where we um, go around and look at the the number of species to try and measure the biodiversity along Mary Creek. It's not the kind of survey where you ask birds about their opinions, <laughs> you know, with that little no clipboard. See, see which birds you can spot out in the yeah yeah in the, I in mean the trees yeah. And stuff. Bird opinions a lot easier to get because they tend to tweet a lot these days. 
Oh, I wanted to put that in there. But anyway, <laughs> there was some discussion because um, in some areas you notice that the diversity is dominated by noisy miners. This is a species, Manarina melancephala. They're a native species of honey eater. They're not to be confused with the introduced common or Indian miner, which is Acrodotheres tristis, uh, which is at one point was voted the most hated pest in Australia, the Indian miner was. So the but, Indian miner is what some people call blackbirds, is that? No, blackbirds are black okay. and with an orange beak kind of thing. The, the Indian miners, they're brown with a yellow beak. The noisy miners can be told apart because they're grey with a yellow beak. Okay. Um, oh, they yeah. also, they're spelt different. The, the Indian miner is M-Y-N-A. The noisy miner is M-I-N-E-R. They're also... Uh, as I said, they're, they're grey instead of brown. You find them more in woodland or parkland instead of in urban areas because uh, mine, Indian miners tend to be more in your built-up yep. areas. Um, you also find the Indian miners kind of more commonly found in pairs. They, you know, they like you know, mating pairs, whereas the noisy miners are in big gangs that gang up on other birds and and chase them away, which is why they're a problem, mm. as you can imagine. So they do well in parks, which is where you have trees with grass underneath instead of a proper under, built up understory. They also do well at the edges of woodland, um, although they can apparently go up to 300 metres into, into the forested woodland. But yeah, it's basically where there is a disturbed environment, there's not a natural environment, is where they flourish. What they do is they chase out other birds. They've been actually referred to as a reverse keystone species, the impact that they have on wow. the ecosystem. So yeah, they reduce bird diversity. That also includes chasing out um, small birds that eat insects, which then the trees damage uh, damage from insect kind of attack. eating the leaves, insect attack. And there's also an idea that they may affect um, pollination as well by you know other birds that may yep. do pollination. So yeah, the whole ecosystem scuffs as a result of the noisy miners. Yeah, so look, as I said, it's a native species, so but you know it's kind yeah. of a dilemma what do you do about it. But this is definitely our fault, you know. It's, you because know, we've restricted thing. their habitat. yeah, we've changed the the habitat. It's not just when we clear woodland, but also sometimes when we revegetate, we do. If we don't revegetate properly, then it encourages the noises. So what happens is you might get some plants like um, this has been seen in bull oak woodland. Bull oaks are an ironwood, native ironwood, and Sometimes when they're trying to revegetate, they plant eucalypts, which are kind of faster growing, but are the things that the noisy miners like to feed on. Mm. And so then you get the noisy miners coming in and chasing away the, the other birds. So, yeah, I guess the things you can do about them is better revegetation and making sure you plant the right plants, Species, yeah, yeah, and you restore the, um, the natural habitat to that sense. There is also talk of culling them in areas where they're a serious problem. This is very different to the carp. You would not mm. do a nationwide cull because that would just be... Apart from the fact they're a native species, it would not give you the benefit in the areas where you need it. So you have to concentrate. If there's an area where they are a problem, then you would have to cull them there. And this has been shown that it does help that the native other birds come flocking back if you get rid of the noisy miners. But um, yeah, look, it's one of those dilemmas that you have when you have uh, you disturb the environment so much that uh, a particular species takes advantage of it. Yep. But yeah. I guess, you know, introducing some kind of anti-bullying program is not going to work with birds. Look, yeah, they don't. They tend not to listen. I mean, they, the noisy miners, they just talk over everything. They won't <laughs> listen to that. But, yeah. So there you go. Noisy miners and carp, two, um, two species to watch out for. Today I'm going to be talking about the Fort McMurray fires. I'm not sure if a lot of you have heard about it. It has been on the news a fair bit. Fort McMurray is a city of about 80,000 people in northeast Alberta, Canada. For those of you who don't know, Alberta is the province uh, next to British Columbia, so it's east of British Columbia. I'm pretty sure a lot of you would know British Columbia, Whistler. Uh, 
Okay. Vancouver. Yeah, Vancouver, Victoria the West Coast. Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so it's like it's so it's like it's It's not the West Coast of Canada. It's like the one in from the West Coast gotcha. of Canada. Gotcha. Where, it's where the Rocky Mountains are, right? Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm a Canadian. Yeah. At least it, part of them. Yeah. yeah, part of them. And like um Banff National Park and all of that border. This is radio people. Get a map. Yeah. <laughs> So you have been instructed to get a map. Okay. Anyways, on May 3rd, more than 100,000 residents from Fort McMurray and the surrounding area were evacuated due to a large wildfire. Unlike here in Australia, wildfires are not actually that common in Canada. This evacuation was actually the largest recorded wildfire evacuation in Canadian history. And about one-fifth of the homes um, in the city are reported to be destroyed in the fire. A few things contributed to the spread of the fire, things that we can all pretty much recognize as the fuel to any big fire. First, there were record-breaking temperatures. So the temperatures in Fort McMurray in early May got to be around 32.8 degrees Celsius, which is actually very, very, very high because Mm. typically at the start of May, Fort McMurray is at about 15 degrees Celsius or lower. Yep. And then secondly, there was very low relative humidity. And then third, there were very, very strong winds. All of these factors combined with the, um, the fact that there was actually an unusually dry and warm winter this year in that region uh, resulted in the huge wildfire. Uh, so this, this is the kind of region that usually gets snowfall and it's, it's in the Alps, right? So it's kind of mountainous, yeah. cold. Yeah, yeah. So it would have gotten, it should have gotten a fair bit of snow. It's in the boreal forest. Mm -hmm. So big pines and stuff. Yeah. So big, huge forest, lots of snow, but not this year. This year was fairly dry. Uh, The fires are actually currently around 241,000 hectares. And for reference, that's about one and a half times the size of London. So they are massive, massive fires. And they are so intense that they've been creating their own localized weather patterns, such as high winds and lightning from the smoke clouds. And this is actually the part of the the part of the whole fire thing that really caught my eye because I didn't realize that fires could create their own weather patterns. But apparently, with large enough forest fires, um, it's quite common. As the heat rises, it carries the water vapor and ash um, to form cumulus clouds. So these are the what we typically see as the big white fluffy clouds. Mm-hmm. But um, since these ones are made from the fire and the ash, they're actually quite large and dark. And also since they're made from the fire and the ash, they're not called cumulus clouds, but they're called pyrocumulus clouds. These are similar to the clouds that are formed over volcanoes. Now, if the uh, convective forces are strong enough, and these are the forces that result from the transfer of heat from at different altitudes, then the clouds turn into cumulus nimbus clouds, or in our case, pyrocumulus nimbus clouds. And then to make all of this worse, the displacement of the charged particles will result in the creation of lightning. So hmm. that will make the fire, that will exacerbate the fires, basically. So can that start? Like secondary fires from lightning yeah, strikes. Basically, yeah. yeah. So because it's so dry and there's so much um, charge in the air, there's just these massive lightning storms instead. So the clouds don't don't then like attract water vapor in no, any way. No, they don't have any sort of like they really don't have any water in them except for the water that's being splashed onto the fires. Anyways, okay. so they're they're not carrying any water. They're just really charged. There's an imbalance in the electrical charges and in the atmosphere due to the particles of dust and rain, and in our case, fire and ash. 
So there's a lot of positive charges that accumulate at the top of the cloud, and then the negative charges will spread along the bottom of the cloud, and then the positive charges gather at the on the ground as well, and a current is passed through, and that creates lightning. And um, to add to all of this, the fires also create incredibly large updrafts. So they pull in so much of the surrounding air and more and more as the fire grows and the resulting wind can be so strong that it actually carries the fire with it. Hmm. So as we all know, wind can actually change the whole system pretty drastically and can really make the uh, fires unpredictable. Actually, even with this fire, before it got so large that it was making its own wind, the reason it got to be so bad is because it was actually burning in the other direction and then all of a sudden the winds changed and then it pulled it into the town. Right. Anyways, I did mention earlier that one of the contributing factors of the fire was the extreme warm weather. Fort McMurray was experiencing temperatures around 30 degrees, where it's typically closer to 15 degrees. This has actually been a common trend around the world, even here in Australia, um, if we think about the Tassie fires earlier this year. And there are two kind of uh, reasons that we've been having higher than usual temperatures this year. Firstly, we're experiencing an El Nino, where the heat from the ocean is pumped into the atmosphere. However, there are many scientists that are suggesting that global warming is also playing a huge role in the intensity and the frequency of our forest fires. The temperatures are higher and it's drier than usual. At present, our forests are helping to offset most of our greenhouse gas emissions, but if we continue to lose more forests, we can be in a... um, dangerous spot as the carbon locked away in the forest actually enters the atmosphere and makes the heating even more intense. Scientists are predicting that we've just embarked on what the future will look like in terms of fires. They reckon we should expect more intense, more extreme fires if our current emissions and land use trends continue. And if that's the case, the coming years are going to be uh, quite full on with fires in countries like Australia where we already have such a big issue with fires. I'm Maggie Darren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. Okay, so uh, I've got Professor Paul Fisher from La Trobe University on the line. Paul, how are you going? I'm, I'm really well, thanks, Stu. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science now. You're a microbiology professor. Yep. And you've been working on uh, Parkinson's disease, I guess... The first question people might have is, what is Parkinson's disease? Uh, I thought you were going to ask a different question. I thought you were going to ask what, what a microbiology professor would possibly be doing working on Parkinson's disease. Well, that, that's also a good question. We can start with that if you like. <laughs> All right, I will. So um, we've been working for many years actually on a microorganism that has the same kinds of cells that we have in the sense of having proper chromosomes and nuclei and and so on. And, and that includes in it some compartments, some tiny little compartments called mitochondria that make the energy for cells. They make about 95% of the energy that we use in our bodies. And these little microbes have the same kind of structure in them doing the same kind of thing. So it's basically belonging to the same group of organisms that is everything that's not bacteria and as a consequence you can do nasty things to it to find out about how mitochondria function and what they're important for in cells. So they're a bit of a model for how, right. how human cells operate? 
That's right, right. yeah. And, and they're useful for that purpose as a model system, they're called, because, as I said, you can manipulate them genetically, you can mutate them at will, and nobody cares. There's no ethics problems either. So, And you can do things quickly because you can grow them cheaply and fast in the lab. So we started studying diseases of the mitochondria many years ago using this organism. In fact, we had the first mitochondrial disease model system studying mitochondrial diseases back in the early 90s with this organism. And because many of the common neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease are believed to also involve mitochondrial defects, we wanted to then move on to study those diseases, and we've been doing that as well. And at the same time, we also wanted to try to find out if the things that we were discovering using this very simple model organism were actually true in human cells with people who actually have these diseases. So that's how we got into the Parkinson's disease stuff, trying to find out if in human Parkinson's disease patients we could see the same kinds of things that we were seeing in our model organism. Okay, so what effects does Parkinson's have on humans? The most obvious thing that people notice and they associate with Parkinson's disease is problems with movement. So there's often a tremor starting often on one side of the body, could be the hand for example. There can be difficulty initiating movements, again starting mainly on one side of the body. But as the disease progresses it also affects other things and so you can have cognitive effects. So that means effects on your ability to remember things, you can become forgetful, you can lose your sense of smell. Some people even in the late stages of the disease have hallucinations so there's a whole variety of different things that can go wrong. And that's because neurons in different parts of the brain are being affected. And the movement problems that I alluded to a moment ago, they come from problems in neurons deep down in the brain called the substantia nigra. And those cells are dying off. And so these movement problems with the tremor and the freezing and so on. So in the past, the only way to, I guess, diagnose someone with Parkinson's was when they started developing the tremors and the, and the memory problems. Is that, is that how it was traditionally yeah, diagnosed? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's, that's still the case and, and until we get what's called a biomarker, which is what we were looking for, until that becomes available, it won't be possible to do it any other way. And obviously that's therefore still the gold standard. So if you're developing a test based on a biomarker, you've got to show that your biomarker picks up the same thing that the current clinical tests pick up. Okay, so what would be the advantage of being able to pick it up before the symptoms made themselves apparent? Okay, so the advantages would potentially be that you might be able to slow the onset or progression of the disease, or at least the symptoms of it, if you knew early enough. By the time you start to actually see clinical um, symptoms that I was talking about earlier, people already have lost many of the neurons in those uh, affected parts of the brain. If you knew earlier, you might be able to um, start treatment or start other things like lifestyle changes that might be able to slow it down. So those losses are permanent from that point? Yes. Okay. So that's because... Uh, your neurons basically you have for life and when you lose them it's um it's not impossible but it's it's difficult to get them back what sort of uh things are you working on at the moment so what we've um found is that if we 
look at blood cells and we chose blood because it's a readily accessible tissue. People are quite comfortable and it's relatively easy to give a, a blood sample compared to other types of assays. So we were looking at blood and we wanted to see whether in immortalised white blood cells we could actually see changes in the Parkinson's disease patients compared to healthy controls. And what we're looking at is the function of the mitochondria, these energy-producing compartments inside cells. We were expecting to see a loss of mitochondrial function because that's what's reported in the literature. So we were expecting that when we did this test, we'd see a reduction in mitochondrial activity as a consequence in these cells. But in fact, we saw the reverse. We saw a very dramatic, significant elevation of mitochondrial function. And we were able to show that the mitochondrial function was otherwise completely normal. They're just working a lot more in these blood cells from Parkinson's patients compared to healthy controls. They're actually working harder than a healthy patient. Yes, yeah. They're working about four times, doing about four times as much respiration. So when the mitochondria are producing energy for us, it is the mitochondria that are actually consuming the oxygen that we breathe in. And so you can measure the oxygen consumption rates of the mitochondria, and they're doing it four times faster than the healthy control cells were in our pilot study. So that's a bit of a surprise to everyone who's been uh, working on Parkinson's, obviously. Yes, <laughs> it is a surprise. It's, it's the reverse of what they're expecting to see. Yes. So from this point on, what's your next step? Well, we've been funded by the Michael J. Fox Foundation and their Australian funding partner, which is a charitable organisation called Shake It Up Australia, to expand on our pilot study. In our pilot study, it was relatively small. We only had 29 Parkinson's patients and nine healthy control individuals. So that's a relatively small sample. So we're basically funded to increase that sample so we can get more data. That will verify what we found in the pilot study and it will also allow us to detect other potential changes, for example, during the progression of the disease. There may be changes going on that we'll be able to pick up when we have a bigger sample as well. We also, down the track, want to be able to see how specific this change is relative to other diseases. So would we see the same thing in, for example, Alzheimer's disease, where we would also be expecting a reduction in mitochondrial function based on the literature, as we were in the Parkinson's case. So now we're not so sure. <laughs> so we would like to look at it and see what happens in the Alzheimer's case and other neurodegenerative diseases as well. For a test to be really useful, you've got to be able to know exactly what tells you and what it doesn't tell you. Yeah. Well, um, it sounds like really interesting research and you've sort of uh, flipped it on its head a little bit. And I just want to say thanks for joining us on Lost in Science and good luck with your research into Parkinson's disease in the future. Thanks. Thanks. You're very welcome. We're, we're naturally still looking for funding to do those other diseases because we haven't got funds for that at the moment. So it's hope, always about hope. scrabbling for money in this game. Well, that's right. It's the, <laughs> yeah, science across the board is pretty much um, always trying to find people to pay for uh, important work like yours. Thanks a lot, um, Professor Paul Fisher from La Trobe University.
that's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in, in science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.